Well, good morning, Crossroads. It's a, always a blessing for me to open up the Word of God with you all and to behold Christ together, especially since I am but a recipient of the grace upon grace uh, that we all receive from the Lord Jesus, who have trusted in him. In light of our preaching through the Gospel of Mark, I wanted to look to Christ as prophesied in the Old Testament. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We will focus on those verses specifically, verses 13 and 14, but I will read from the beginning of chapter 7. The scripture reads, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. 
I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So reads the word of the living God. Paradise Lost is one of the great epic poems of the English language written by John Milton in 1667. But paradise lost is also a suitable description of life, our life, banished from the Garden of Eden. In this fallen world of thorns and thistles, tears and pain, sin and heartache, decay and death. We all know what it means to groan for glory as natural born descendants of Adam. But you should know that John Milton's follow up to The tragic paradise loss was the triumphant and hopeful work entitled Paradise Regained. And far more important for you to know is that the scriptures open before us reveal God's story and work of redemption. And that redemption centers on the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have sung about and placed our hope in even this morning. The Son of God and the Son of Man who descended from heaven to reconcile, regain, and renew what was lost. Rightly so, Jesus has many titles and names in Scripture. He is the Lord. He is the living word. He is the Lamb of God, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the prince of peace, and many others. But Jesus self-identified most, even in the Gospel of Mark, which we're going through as As Crossroads right now, he self-identified most with the title, Son of Man. And Daniel chapter 7 will help us to see why. And answer the crowd's question from John 12, 34. Who is this Son of Man? And contextually speaking, it's so important to grasp and reading and taking in this vision of Daniel's and reading verses 13 and 14 that Daniel is writing this book to an exiled people, exiled Israel, a people born into paradise loss and who had just lost the promised land. Israel was in a foreign nation, enslaved away from the promised land. They were facing pagan idolatry and sometimes being forced to engage in it or persecuted when they choose not to. Their worldview was completely being attacked. They were exiles in a foreign land. Doesn't that sound familiar? This book was good news to them and us that God sovereignly reigns over history and over all human kingdoms. And in the end, only God's kingdom will remain where the son of man will reign with his saints. So what Daniel seen by way of vision, may we see in this text with eyes of faith, eyes of faith. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 sets our gaze upon the royal glory of the son of man, King Jesus. 
This text sets our gaze upon the royal glory of the Son of Man, King Jesus. And it is my prayer that in gazing upon his glory, our faith would be strengthened, our hope would be reassured, and our love would be deepened as we sojourn as pilgrims and exiles in this foreign land. We'll look at this text via two headings, the first being in verse 13, the glory of his coming, the glory of his coming. Daniel says in verse 13, I saw in the night visions. And let's just pause there. What's going on at this point, and even looking back to verse 1 and 2, is something extraordinary amidst the everyday ordinary. Last night at some point, I'm pretty confident that every single one of you laid down in your bed and went to sleep. Verse 1 of chapter 7 tells us, Daniel was doing the same exact thing. When revelatory, supernatural dreams and visions came from God disrupting his dozing off. Because we have the fullness of revelation and none of us are prophets, I'm pretty sure that won't happen to you tonight. But the vision of the Son of Man in verses 13 and 14, which we're focused on primarily today, it's not the beginning of this vision. It's a multi-layered vision. I read in chapter 7 from the start, the visions began with the winds of heaven and the sea. And four animals or beasts, they're called, rising up from the sea in chaos and rebellion. And then the beasts are judged by God, the ancient of days, in verses 9 through 12. This multi-layered vision from God looks forward to what is to come for Daniel and Israel at this time and place where they were in exile. These four beasts have been understood to refer chronologically to evil kingdoms, namely Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. That would be judged by God and would not stand like God's kingdom and don't stand today. But this vision not only looked forward, it looks back to Genesis 1. Remember the beginning, which began with the heavens and the spirit hovering over the water like the wind. Beasts were crafted from the created order. And then all creation culminated with man. In Genesis, that culmination was with Adam, whose dominion was usurped by the serpent that beast of the field. But in Daniel 7, the culmination is with the Son of Man. Look back with me to verse 13. This is the glory of the Son of Man's coming. He says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Here we see the Son of Man enter into the heavenly court and throne room. Notice the text says, with the clouds of heaven. That is an important detail to take note of. With these words, this interest is undeniably and divinely glorious, according to the Old Testament witness. Daniel is telling us, I've seen this figure doing something only God can do. I'm seeing someone be only where God can be. Humans live and travel right? By walking upright, by bikes, cars, planes, or boats. How we travel betrays our nature. Sea creatures live and travel by the sea. Judges 
travel and then sit and sit on a throne. But God alone moves with the clouds. Psalm 104 verse 3 says he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19 verse 1, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. Or Nahum chapter 1 verse 3, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The beast in Daniel 7 are brought into the heavenly throne room and courtroom like guilty criminals being dragged off to court in judgment. But the coming of the Son of Man gloriously captures Daniel's gaze and should ours by faith. Because it tells them there's hope within the exile. And in beholding the Son of Man, we're beholding one who is like no other. He who eternally and fully shares the divine nature with God, the Father, and the Spirit. The Son of Man is not merely a man, but eternally the Son of God, distinct in person from God the Father and the Spirit, but undivided in eternal divine glory. This is precisely why Jesus in the Gospels speaks of himself. In the Gospel of Mark, as we've seen, as the Son of Man who has descended from heaven or who has authority to forgive sinners, people like you and me, something only God can do. Jesus says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath and angels. The Son of Man, speaking of himself, is the Christ, the Spirit-anointed Son from the Father, and will in his second coming come to the earth on the clouds of heaven with power and glory of God, because the Son of Man is God, the only begotten Son of God, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. His everlasting existence and coming is glorious indeed. And I pray by God's grace through this text, you see anew or afresh the Son of Man in all of his glory. Look back with me to verse 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Daniel asserts the word like here because the clouds show this one is divine. But the beautiful reality is that this one is in a real way like us. Throughout the Old Testament, this phrase, son of man, simply meant human being and could be translated son of Adam. The first man who was made by God from the ground. Ezekiel 2.1, Ezekiel is called son of man as he's called to ministry. Psalm chapter 8 verse 4 says, what is man that you are mindful of him and and the son of man that you care for him? Daniel sees a type of divine humanity in beholding the glory of the son of man in this vision, the fullness of deity in bodily form. So this multi-layered vision of Daniel's that looks forward to the future, but with the backdrop of Genesis 1, culminates with this divine one who is like a son of man which shows Daniel is beholding the glory of the second Adam. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The second Adam who reverses the fall, who regains, reconciles, and renews paradise that was lost. The seed of Abraham, the kingly son and Lord of David. Because of the failure of Adam and Eve, we are all born sinners by nature and choice. Therefore, in order to be redeemed and reconciled to God, we need a second Adam, 
with a real human nature, yet without sin, to fulfill God's law and bear the curse of death on our behalf with the power to rise again. When you have a dead car battery, you don't need more gas or a new paint job. You need another car battery that replaces and renews life to the car. Likewise, from redemption from sin and spiritual life from death, it's not about working hard religiously or really looking to yourself at all. We need a second Adam to redeem us and to restore the created order. And this second Adam came in the Lord Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. As Galatians 4, 4 puts it, who in the fullness of time, God sent, born of the woman, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the good news of the gospel, the gospel according to Daniel even. This is our hope in the face of sin and amidst exile. The son of God became a son of man so that men and women can become sons and daughters of God. When you in faith trust Christ and repent of your law-breaking sins against a holy God. And this son of man in his incarnate state, Jesus said, has come to seek and save the lost. He humbled himself and the son of man at times had nowhere to even lay his head on this earth. But he came so that he could fulfill the law of God that you and I have failed to keep. Because we are all sinners and have fallen short of God's glory. And in infinite grace, the free grace of God, and in rich mercy, and in redeeming love, Christ died upon as a substitute upon the cross, taking upon himself the wrath of God due to us, that we might be forgiven, saved, redeemed, reconciled. And he rose on the third day with complete victory and vindication and lives in this very moment as a mediator, advocate, and all-sufficient Savior to all who would believe in him. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And he gives rest to the soul for whoever trusts in him. There are two types of people in this world. Those who are in Adam, lost in sin and alienated from God. Or those who are in Christ, the second Adam, who by free grace are redeemed children of God and exiles in this evil world. See, the first Adam failed in his work. The second Adam, our Savior, said, it is finished. The first Adam plunged us into sin by disobedience, eating fruit from the tree. The second Adam was obedient in our place to the point of death upon the tree of the cross. The first Adam failed his bride. The second Adam loved and died for his bride, overflowing with grace. I'm speaking to you today who may not know the Savior this son of man, the second Adam who you need, come to Christ today. Simply hear the good news of the gospel and receive and rest in him. He has come precisely for people like you. He's come into the world to save and love sinners. There's no other option. Let nothing hold you back. See his glory in the gospel and and even in this text and with simple trust and faith, embrace him. Behold him as Daniel does in this vision. Whatever sin you are afraid to lose, it will be a delight to dismiss when you embrace Christ. The gospel takes you from being a stranger to God 
to a pilgrim and stranger of this world as a child of God. The good news of the gospel is calling your heart today from this text and encouraging you, believer, as our hope, as exiles. The Son of Man's coming is glorious because he comes as the second Adam who brings triumph, not tragedy, and reverses the fall. But look back with me to verse 13. It says, He came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Up until this point in chapter 7, maybe you caught it as we read, there was only evil kingdoms. And every beast of those kingdoms in Daniel 7 was judged by God. No one can stand before the holy throne of judgment on their own and not be judged. In the same way that none of us can stand before the throne apart from Christ and live. Because we need a representative and a mediator. But thus far in Daniel 7, coming before the ancient of days is like being sent to the principal's office or to HR. It's just not good. But the son of man's coming before the ancient of days is glorious. For he comes not for judgment, but for coronation. In other words, enthronement to the kingdom of God itself. Since the son of man is the son of God and the second Adam and the king of all kings, as we sang. So in light of verse 13, by way of application, I exhort and encourage each and every one of you to recognize anew or afresh today your need for Jesus, the Son of God, the second Adam, the Son of Man, but also rejoice that we have a Savior perfectly suitable and sufficient for our souls in every circumstance. Our need for Christ isn't a momentary reality in a one-time response to the gospel. Remember, we are exiles and pilgrims in this world. You are an exile and pilgrim on your college campus. You must daily place your soul's hope in Christ. An unwavering hope in Jesus is what you need when faced with persecution, opposition, or temptations to give up or to give in to the brokenness of this world. A confident hope of the coming glory and eternal reign of Jesus is what you need when following Jesus in these years of your life places you as an outsider or you find yourself being ostracized in the world. The son of man, Christ here, brought hope to Daniel amidst exile and opposition. And that same hope in the Son of Man, the second Adam, and the Lord Jesus must abide in your heart to not grow weary or faint-hearted in the pilgrimage of life in this world. In Christ, the Son of Man is certainly faithful, a perfect object, author, and finisher of our faith. And I also want to encourage you to treasure the whole person of Jesus He is truly God and truly man. And because of that, we have a representative under the law who has perfectly fulfilled it. A substitute sacrifice upon the cross and a risen mediator, a high priest who's tempted in every way and yet without sin, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who lovingly intercedes for us continually. And as one who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, What a friend we have in Jesus, in this son of man that we read about here, who lives today, 
May we treasure him and tell others about him because every single person in Adam needs the second Adam. And when we treasure him deeply, we'll live for him wisely in our pilgrimage and amidst our exile. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 sets our gaze upon the royal glory of the Son of Man, King Jesus. Having seen the glory of his coming in verse 13, let us look to verse 14, the glory of his kingdom, the glory of his kingdom. The book of Daniel is all about God's sovereignty rising up and bringing down kings, which is true to this very moment over all kingdoms, monarchies, and politics. And in the end, only the kingdom of God will reign and remain. And that's really good news to a people in exile who were pilgrims and sojourns just making it through. And what that's told Israel was that the hope of the Davidic covenant, that a Davidic king would reign forever, still is real. And it's good news today for us as the church, swimming against the stream in this godless world. Verse 14 is pointing you towards the everlasting kingdom of God and the Son of Man who is our king, who will reign forever and will bring us the greatest rest and kingdom that we long for. So look to verse 14 when it says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Contextually to Daniel 7 here, when we read these verses, we have to see that one key difference between the Son of Man and all the beasts was that he's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. The, the four beasts and evil earthly kingdoms are characterized by chaos and rebellion, and they had their dominion taken away. But the Son of Man is the God-ordained king, the rightful king, and the king we've all been waiting for forever since the Garden of Eden. This word dominion here in verse 14 speaks to royal authority, which should take us back to Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28. Genesis 1 reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Dominion is what Adam was supposed to have but he was usurped by Satan, which will never have to say of the Lord Jesus. This reinforces the truth that the Son of Man, namely Jesus Christ, is the second Adam, who is not only our Savior, Redeemer, who reverses the fall, but our everlasting King who will bring God's kingdom back, back to his creation who will bring the kingdom back to creation in all of its fullness. And just reading this, especially in light of recent events, people long for monarchy. People love royalty. And it's because we were made to be reigned over by a king. We were made to love that type of thing. But it was ultimately made for King Jesus. 
to be in his kingdom and to behold and to treasure our king in Christ. The word dominion in the book of Daniel has been used to speak of God's never-ending dominion in chapter 4, verse 32. And it also says that God gives it to whomever he will. And eternally, the kingdom of God is given to King Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. That's why in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says in his second coming, he will sit on his glorious throne. There have been 46 presidents in the United States. There were like 70 emperors in the Roman Empire. There were over 170 pharaohs in ancient Egypt. All human dynasties, empires, monarchies, and countries face change due to policy or mortality. But in the kingdom of God, there is one king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. There is no term limit, and he is our risen king, so he is alive forevermore with a never-ending dominion. Think of that, Christian, when you are frustrated with human leaders. Christ's dominion is the reward of God's grace. And in verse 14, Daniel tells us that the Son of Man receives glory from God, honor and splendor, when it says, and to him was given dominion and glory. It speaks to the Son of Man's divine existence as the Son of God. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, God says, my glory I will not give to another, but here he gives glory to the Son of Man. And in John 17, 5, Jesus praying to the Father spoke of the glory they shared before the foundation of the world. And not only is glory and dominion given, but a kingdom. A kingdom is given from the ancient of days to the Son of Man. This is sovereign power and kingship. Jesus, the Son of Man, is the King David. Jesus, the Son of Man, is what is who King David and all of Israel look forward to. He's the king that our hearts long for. And I'm sure most of us in this room know and love just being where we're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to do, serving where you're meant to serve, playing your part on the team, fulfilling the role you were gifted to fulfill. This is true whether it's in church, your family, at a job, on a sports team, in a group project. It's just simply a wonderful experience. Well, the Son of Man, King Jesus, in the perfect wisdom of God's sovereignty, he alone fulfills the role of everlasting king. And that is a great thing because he is the best king. That's not a role for you or for me. Trying to fulfill that role, trying to make ourselves king and kings and queens, even of our own life, is more foolish than breaking into the White House, trying to convince the people there that you were meant to be president. It, will, it, it just is not going to end well. However, by God's grace, there is a role for Daniel, for the people of God in exile, and for us as the church. As saints in Christ Jesus, in verse 14, tells us that gift, that role, and that purpose. So, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Implicit in this word serve is worship. My brothers and sisters, 
That is where you're supposed to be. That is what you're supposed to do, who you're supposed to serve, the gifted role you were meant to fulfill. However, God has wired you finds its rightful place in serving Christ, our king, serving and worshiping him. Daniel's seen in this vision the glory of the Son of Man's kingdom and the glorious grace given to his saints to serve him. Remember in context, Daniel and the people of God were in exile serving pagans, serving Gentile kings who had no reverence or love for Yahweh. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, the people of God, along with All peoples, nations, and languages were commanded to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image and serve him. If not for God's grace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have died in the flames for not doing so. But there was someone in the fire. God met them and sustained them there. But that's the context in which these words come. And Daniel sees here, and this should encourage you, that all peoples, which means every ethnicity, All nations, every single country, and in every language, without war, without strife, without division, without sin, but in humble unity amidst beautiful diversity, we will serve the Son of Man, who we know to be King Jesus. And that's the world we long for. That's the hope that anchors us amidst our exile and pilgrimage. Prophesied here, that is our destiny. Which, which should strengthen our faith, reassure our hope, and deepen our love. Our destiny is all grace. And to be with the Lord Jesus, our King. Verse 14 goes on and says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man's kingdom is glorious because it's all-encompassing with all people without distinction, but it is also imperishable and indestructible. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and its kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. It's often said that all good things come to an end, right? Great professional sports players retire, besides Tom Brady, Flowers fade. Even your best day ever, whatever that was, think about it. It ended. Crazy. But the dominion of King Jesus, as told us here in this text, the Son of Man will never end. It's an everlasting dominion, and it will never pass away. And even the reality of sin, death, and passing away, that will have died and will be a thing of the past. Relational strife and struggle, a thing of the past and the kingdom of the son of man with his saints. His kingdom isn't for a season that we'll need to soak up, but for an eternity for us to enjoy, chiefly enjoying him. The son of man's kingdom is glorious because it will never be destroyed, overtaken or overthrown. Rather, King Jesus, the son of man, will reign undefeated and incorruptible. The first Adam's dominion was destroyed by Satan. But Jesus, the son of man, and the second Adam, according to 1 John 3, 8, came to destroy the work of Satan. Yet Genesis 3, 15 says Christ, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of Satan, but 
the Christ will suffer being bruised in the process. This glorious kingdom of the Son of Man, seen here by Daniel in redemptive history, was gained through suffering. In other words, the cross comes before the crown. Now, this is actually made clear in the book of Daniel in this chapter in verses 15 through 27, which we won't read, but this whole vision is interpreted in the second half of this chapter. And in this interpretation of this vision, the Son of Man is actually totally absent, and he's replaced by the saints, believing Israel, and eventually a new covenant, the church, who comes together as the people of God with Israel, who receive and possess the kingdom. And this shows us, consistent with the Old Testament as a whole, that the king is tightly tied and knit to his people, as the Son of Man is with his saints. Daniel 7.25 says the saints will suffer from earthly kingdoms, which implies this suffering will come to the Son of Man as well. And then in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, it speaks to the anointed one, the Christ, being cut off, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, being lifted up to be crucified. After living the most beautiful life of love and obedience, The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, was crucified upon the cross as the Passover Lamb of God, taking away the sins of all those who believe in him. The wrath of God passes over us because it was poured out upon him. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The bloody cross of Christ is at the heart of the gospel. Our sins are placed on him that his righteousness would clothe us in justification. He bore our curse so that we could know redemption. He suffered the wages of our sin so that we can receive and rest in the grace of his forgiveness. He rose again that we might live forever. And we ought to believe in him. He had to complete the work of redemption to have a people to reign over. In the kingdom came through suffering. The cross is before the crown. His kingdom is glorious because Jesus, the son of man, is the crucified king. His kingdom comes through the suffering of the cross. For Christ to reign as king over redeemed saints, he had to suffer as our substitute redeemer. There is no kingdom without the cross, but the risen savior, the son of man, because he is alive in this very moment, will reign forever. And all the saints, all the people of God will serve him in unending, indestructible, everlasting, royal glory and joy. In light of the glory of his kingdom, behold your king, Christ, the son of man. We may look at other countries and say, we don't have a monarchy. And that may be true because we live in a democracy But we do have a king, church, and his name is Jesus. Joyfully surrender to his majesty by humbly surrendering to his royal authority. Live in view of his throne rather than establishing and building your own. Don't live in this life to become the rich young ruler and just build a kingdom of your own with these possessions that you don't want to forsake to embrace Christ. Live in view of his throne, not to establish your own. 
And in so surrendering to our King, the Lord Jesus, it frees you to fear Him with an awed adoration and reverence, not fear man and other people, because His authority is ultimate. The Son of Man in this text showed the exiled people of God, the true King of Kings will reign. In church, He is our King. He is our Savior. He is our hope amidst the pilgrimage and the exile. We have a King, Christian. And King Jesus ought to have your preeminent affection and allegiance day by day by day by day until our faith becomes sight. And because we see in this text, in the whole of Scripture, in Daniel 7, that the cross comes before the crown, we have to grasp that we will have to endure suffering too. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you, That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Or Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And saints and fellow heirs with Christ, we suffer with him, knowing that we will be glorified through him. I don't know all the suffering that's going on in this room, whether it's mental, emotional, circumstantial, relational, whatever it would be. But your suffering has an expiration date. It may be hard in it, but you are not hopeless in it. We have a hope of the kingdom, and that hope is rooted in the faithfulness, goodness, reliability, and loveliness of our king. And this doesn't mean that you go out and look for suffering. Don't have this unhealthy modern complex But you don't have to look for suffering as a Christian in this world. They hated our master, so we'll encounter them hating us too. And especially on college campuses, right? The complete opposite of a biblical worldview. But take heart. That's why we have each other. And we collectively look unto Jesus. May we daily, continually collectively come after him, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, trusting God to bring us safely into his kingdom. Because the cross comes before the crown, but the crown is coming and Jesus will reign forever. And in the wonderful goodness of the gospel, he wants to reign with us. But at the same time, remember Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice, rejoice in our king, rejoice in the son of man. We know how the story ends with Christ, the son of man on the throne. May we rejoice with renewed faith, enduring hope and an incorruptible love and obedience to our king and in him take comfort. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. No, 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 no matter what authority or issues may come about in this world and the powers that be. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom and we are ambassadors of that kingdom. Let's give ourselves to making disciples, marking them in baptism, maturing them in the word, knowing that our king is with us and he's for us and his glorious kingdom is ahead of us. Daniel 7 Verses 13 and 14 sets our gaze on the royal glory of the Son of Man, King Jesus. Paradise was once lost, but through him 
we know the paradise of the kingdom is coming. There'll be no more sin, no more suffering, no more Satan. We will be glorified in the likeness of our Savior, the second Adam, the Son of Man, the Son of God, King Jesus. And we won't just hear him in the cool of the day. We will see him and forever gaze upon his royal glory, the king in all of his beauty. May that day come. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you in the name of Christ, our Savior and King. Lord, uh, we don't make good masters. We don't make good lords. Uh, We don't make good king and queens of our own lives. But that's why we need him. And we thank you that he has come. I pray we would embrace Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, more deeply and follow him more nearly. In Jesus' name, amen.